back to Rupture Radio, a weekly look at news, politics and culture from a, a socialist perspective. We're back with a, a full news panel this week, a chance to look at what's going on, what's going wrong in the world of politics. Uh, not so much rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, but, but maybe a chance to, to have a laugh while we sink um, with the occasional interesting nugget of truth thrown in along the way. Um, so this, this week I'm joined by, by Des. How are you? This, that's your cue to say hi. Um, <laughs> Nicole. Hello. And our special guest back with us again uh, um, from self-imposed exile in Barcelona, uh, Saoirse McHugh. Hello, how are you? Not bad, not bad. Uh, um, so b- before we jump into discussing the uh, climate, COVID and the complete, complete failure of the Irish judicial system, uh, um, does anybody have any more positive, joyous things to report? What's, what's life like in, um, or your, your trip to Barcelona? How's, how's, how's life like over there? Oh, it's, it's lovely. I was just saying, um, you know, before we started recording that maybe sometimes I think oh, Twitter, just you just see the worst of the worst. You see the worst of Dublin on it. But honestly, like other countries are just brilliant. Like city living can actually be lovely. And the apartments are like real houses you can live in. You know, it's not just a, a bed beside a toilet, beside a cooker. And the, the uh, rent is affordable and there's public spaces and there's municipal services. And it's just, it's just so pleasant to be in and walk around. Like, no doubt, obviously, if I lived here long term, there'd be a load of problems that Barcelona has as well. But just the very, you know, from the, the kind of the most immediate ones, which I think coming from Ireland are always going to be accommodation prices and quality. It's just, it's just unreal. It's like a complete, it's a, a different world compared to Ireland. I've never been to, to Barcelona. I was in Valencia uh, um, a few years ago, and it was beautiful. Uh, they had taken a, a river that used to there used to be a river that ran through the city centre, and they redirected it around the city like two hundred years ago, a hundred years ago. And Valencia has this lovely like now a, a park. What used to be the river is now all converted into park uh, uh, with like sports facilities and all. So everywhere in the city, you're right beside this beautiful strip park that goes through the whole city, you know? I'm trying to imagine all the ways that that would have been fucked up if we had to try to do, accomplish that in Ireland or Dublin, you know what I mean? It'd still be like a building site where the park is promised to be finished in 2030 or something. No, it would just <laughs> be a road, a giant road. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that, another that, car park, that's what we need. A, yeah. a luxury hotel and a car park. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that was a big, um, there was a big movement around that in the 60s. Um, there, there was an attempt to, I think, turn it into a road and there was a huge um, protest. Turn what into a road? Yeah, in, into that riverbed. Um, the, the yeah, yeah, yeah. So oh, really? uh, it was one of the early campaigns um, uh, against uh, the, the Spanish government of the day, you know, um, and there was a huge campaign built around that against the or- original proposals that ultimately resulted in that park that's, uh, that runs through there. And I, I've been there as well, and it is beautiful. But uh, yeah, there's a real social history around how that happened. Oh, that's fantastic. We'll have to start like a social history travel podcast to partner it, like, you know, the, the untold struggle stories of struggle for all the cities that you're visiting, you know? Yeah, yeah, and against Franco at the time, was Franco at the time, so yeah, yeah. There's, there's a whole story there. And uh, Barcelona I have been in as well, and uh, I love that place, and my abiding memories is just sitting around in the, in the squares or the plazas, uh, drinking a coffee, 
discovering Gaudi, I don't know much about architecture and I probably should have known him before I went to Barcelona, but I just found his architecture was just stunning. Um, and the other thing was I did a Civil War themed walking tour. I think they're still going there, which was great. It was an English guy that, that, that did it. Um, I think he's, you know, with anarchist politics and it was just fascinating, you know, that the things he knew, the sites he could show you on what happened. So uh, if that's still going, it's well worth doing. I was busy trying to find the weed cafes. <laughs> I've uh, been on that walking tour with Nick Lloyd, isn't it? Civil that's, War tour. That's the very man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's excellent. Like, yeah. he is excellent. And it, it really, it, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Um, the the kind of histories within Barcelona itself. It, it, it's just, yeah, it really brought it all to life. It was excellent, I thought. Yeah, yeah it was great. Oh yeah, well, it's a small world. It's a small world uh, um, we, that you physically know the same person in Barcelona. Um, <laughs> uh, what, what, you, Nicole, you mentioned weed cafes. Weed isn't legal in Spain, is it? Is this, or is it so more? in Barcelona, they have this like technical thing where you can join a weed club, and once you're a member of the club, now I'm not sure how the legalities of it actually work but you like pay a membership fee and then it kind of works in the similar kind of way to how it would in like Amsterdam or whatever there's like a coffee shop style that you'd go in and buy from and stuff like that I was really uh, surprised by it I was thinking it would have been like a lot more kind of um seedier than it had to be you know what I mean it was they were like well established cannabis clubs like it was it was nice to see and what's the the other thing that I've heard about in Barcelona was about the super blocks. So this notion of you take, as I understood it, you take like a block of like four, an intersection and around that area and you'd, you'd fully pedestrianize it or, or like not make it so that it's 99% pedestrianized. And then you turn it into like community facilities and you try to bring life to the, to the streets. But I only read about it a few years back because it was being floated for, for Limerick. But what's the... What's the pedestrianisation or superblock situation like in Barcelona now? Well, so I don't know about the governance behind it, but I, I was renting over a couple of months ago, I was renting over near one, and it was like there was this big drive where they a lot of Barcelona was built in these blocks, um, really gridded, kind of like the state, a lot, a lot of cities in the states. But then they've brought in these superblocks, and like you said, it's kind of 99, it's it's... It's functionally pedestrianized, but cars can go through. But it's just it has just brought these areas instead of just traffic. It's brought like community back to these areas. So they they will kind of pedestrianize three or four super blo- blocks together to create these super blocks, and they'd be full of planters and trees and you know drawn out hopscotch and tables and chairs and benches and everything. Um, and the difference is huge. Like walking through them, all of a sudden. The place is busy. There's kids playing. There's people selling roast chestnuts. It's just, it's just excellent. Like I think they realized very quickly that the the utopia of everyone having their own car and driving everywhere was not actually that conducive to community life. Um, and hopefully they're going to spread more and more of these super blocks around the city because they're they're just excellent. Yeah, it was a big thing because you see. The Limerick is built um, on a grid system. The new town of Limerick, which is what 
New, Newtown Perry, it used to be called hundreds of years ago, but it's now just like Limerick City. Um, but it was all built on a, a grid. And I, I believe, I'm not sure, I'd have to like, this is my hot take or my, I believe that one of the architects that was involved in designing that structure ended up being an architect in New York. So I, I've heard it that New York is basically just like trying to do Limerick on a slightly bigger scale, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Western is the new is the new Brooklyn. That's all I've said. So, um, but uh, yeah, so Limerick is perfect. Well, like is potentially perfect for those kind of super blocks. But part of the problem that we faced when we were talking about it is like loads of businesses in the city centre are convinced that unless their customer can like drive right up to their door get out of the car and walk in that nobody will come into the into their shop but like i don't know that's i don't think that's how people operate you go into town you park and then you walk around you want to make town a nice place to walk around you know yeah I mean? it's an experience you get your, your coffee you walk around the streets like i think a bit of um community space in town centers would actually could work out better for shops because it keeps people there for longer you know what i mean they're trying to like recreate the shopping center vibe is what i get with the idea of being able to drive right up to the door but like there's so many shopping centers if that's what you were looking for that's where you would go. We do not need to turn our city centres into that like ridiculous level of convenience for cars, in my opinion, anyway. But even, actually, I'd push back, the shopping centre analogy, I'd use it the reverse. When you go to a shopping centre, fine, you drive there, you park, but then once you go inside the, the once you're in the square tala, there isn't a car driving by you randomly. I mean, you, you, you can feel confident and comfortable to sit and have your coffee or walk around without fear of being knocked down by a one-ton vehicle, like, you know? Yeah, very true. They ha- And, like, they do usually create, like, bench spaces and stuff in shopping centres where they have to move teenagers on from hanging around. I can remember that from the square tally in the good old days. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, okay, that's our recommended daily allowance of good news. On to the, the, the bad news. Um, uh, uh, so, one of the things, Saoirse, you were saying we should chat about is... Um, uh, uh, Fine Gael rallying to the defence of the small farmer and protecting the, the the poor small farmer from that encroaching EU with their new uh, their their peat bill that uh, not just Fine Gael, I think it's a they're calling it a cross party bill from yeah. Paul and Fine Gael. <laughs> um, yeah. But do you want to fill us in on what what this bill is about and why, why it's it's so terrible? Yeah. Okay. So uh, it's Regina Doherty and a Fianna Fáilte Robbie Gallagher. Um are basically bringing forward this bill to look for a derogation to the regulations that we have around peat extraction, which would require anyone extracting peat from a site over 30 hectares uh, to be to get planning permission and be licensed by the EPA. Because obviously, right, you're like digging up the earth. Um, and they're looking for a derogation to 2030 because, you know, all based off the publicity that came around where when we were getting imports from Latvia, Belarus, um, of peat for commercial mushroom growing. Um, and so it's kind of our whole peat extraction industry in Ireland is changing a bit. Uh, Ford and Amona have basically wound up all their operations extracting peat um, because well, maybe not because, but most notably, there was a Friends of the Irish Environment case taken to the High Court there in 2019, basically saying that Ireland's extraction, which was happening by massive companies, multinational companies, um, was in contravenance or 
whatever the term is, whatever that legal term is, was was not in line with European directives. Um, and it would need licensing and planning permission, and there was no um, mechanism by which or the judge ruled that they couldn't open extraction places or uh, areas, couldn't apply for retentions. So they couldn't say, oh, well, I'm doing it now. How about we just license and, for but that? But that was because they hadn't done... The court said that you you needed to be doing environmental impact assessments and stuff like that before you started yeah. extracting. Wasn't well, it? That, yeah. planning permission. And planning yeah. permission and stuff even. Yeah, and they weren't. So basically we've had huge, much like it, seem, it seems to be much like our water and like a lot of things in Ireland, um, this massive industry, this huge uh, money industry was operating unlicensed, unregulated, basically, which never leads to good things ever. Um, I, I, I don't know. I think self-regulation is the, the way to go. It worked a treat with the banks. <laughs> exactly. Facebook, you know, it's great. Um, but anyway, so the, the, there's whole conflict in things coming up around this, this peat bill. The, from people I've been chatting to, I think a lot of people do believe that this is just Regina Doherty and Robbie Gallagher um, politicking. Like, most likely this will once again just be taken to court and it's not in line with EU law. Um, so it, it looks to be like instead of any sort of good faith attempt to to fix the issues that, that do exist, uh, it seems to be more a look at me, I'm sticking it to the the Greens and the EU and the whatever, and it's, you know, this is a common sense approach to something when in reality it's not at all and it's not going to work and it, it it really is just kind of poor publicity, give growers hope um, because, of course, Irish peat, because there's no regulation and no licensing, it's extremely cheap. Well, it's extremely cheap for growers to use. Obviously, we all pay the cost of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and it does. It seems like it's like it's political theatre. They're bringing a bill that they themselves know would most likely be ruled illegal, but they're bringing it to try like to try to just be seen as oh the ones with the solution. Uh, um, uh, uh. But the, the other part of it is that they're creating this narrative of oh well, what about all the peat that we're importing? But they're refusing to acknowledge or to address the massive amounts of peat that's being exported. I saw noteworthy. You sent on a, a, a link. Noteworthy did an expose that like eleven times as much peat is being exported as being as is being imported. I think it's like five hundred thousand tons this year alone is being exported. Uh, um, so and and the whole all the, the they set up a working group to look into like what was going on with peat in Ireland, and they they refused to allow them to even look into the question of exports. You know. Yeah. Yeah, they said that the exports didn't fall within the remit of the working group, which, like, you know, it's been known for decades that the mushroom industry in particular was going to have to come up with something, um, come up with an alternative to use commercially. Uh, um, And I don't believe that, you know, the proper effort has been put through. Like Chagas said in 2013, where is it now? Chagas said in 2013 that there's... um, Mushroom growers are not under immediate pressure to find alternatives. Now, despite that, despite the fact that it wasn't being treated with the urgency it should have been, you know, we still have the problem now. Um, But I I think any solution to it uh, it has to honestly engage with 
our exports. And it has to honestly engage with the fact that our peat extraction industry is primarily export-based. Like it is 90, 95% for export. As, like that, it, the only reason it's probably a viable business for a lot of big companies, peat extraction in Ireland, is because of the export. So like it's, it's very reasonable, I think, to imagine a situation where um, we don't import and we also stop exportation of peat. Um, now, I don't know, you know, how would that interact with European trade laws? I'm not sure. Perhaps you couldn't ban exports of peat. Perhaps you just have to ban further extraction for certain uses. For export. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I just don't think any solution that doesn't engage with the fact that we have to stop extracting peat altogether uh, is in any way honest whatsoever. Like, and you, you see it a lot. You say, oh, well, you know, how is it climate friendly importing peat? And I was like, well, it's, it's exactly as climate friendly as us exporting peat to North America. So either you're against imports and exports or you're not. Um, one of the things I thought was mad was that on Regina Doherty's, I assume it's like her website or whatever, they're talking about the bill and she's like, well, as a result of one foolish legal action, we can't now peat farm as if it's like common sense to reintroduce it. You know what I mean? And I just also think it's kind of funny, like. It me, also makes it sound like. It makes it sound like vaguely like somebody stumbled, fell, yeah, tripped and fell over. Yeah, as if it and, wasn't like. over the lawsuit. Like, you know what I mean? It's like the. The, this angle of well you know we're not going to be able to grow mushrooms anymore like they're expecting all the people who eat mushrooms worldwide to unite and push back against this ridiculous idea and make sure that Ireland can still peat farms so we can enjoy our mushrooms you know what I mean like they're waiting for the the secret movement of the mushroom eaters <laughs> Nicole's primary concern is, does it affect uh, magic mushrooms do they need peat as well or? <laughs> I think they need peat, so- peat soil so they grow on peat soil don't they just in meat pizza oils, yeah. That that nodding you're doing there, Nicole, is really translating well to our podcast. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I'm trying to... that she nodded. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, there's being there's solar panels being installed on the house that I'm minding, so I'm trying to be muted for as long as possible. So for anybody who hears um, drilling in the background, it's it's for the environment, really, so... Just put that out there. <laughs> yeah, I was just struck like the, the IFA, I get we're pushing this Pete story and sharing it. And it just, in recent weeks, like the IFA have just been become a source of such ridiculous uh, climate stuff. Like they, obviously during the, the, when the climate action plan was being put together, they focused on methane and got this ludicrous target of just 10% reductions in methane. But, you know, now they're switching to playing for time, uh, blocking tactics, piles of misinformation it really is you know it's borderline comical you know and i i follow the ifa on twitter now for for the lols half the time but the the the, the important thing is that they have massive influence on the government you know like finnegale and finnefall jump to to those and you, you know you just have to watch charlie mcconnellogue um and see what, what the, the issues he's responding to um and uh, responding to the ifa to shows just how much colossal influence they have on there so like you know the ifa have become a toxic influence um and they're you know on this pete story as well and there's, there's going to be lots more from them well like like what you were saying Kian, it, it does follow a pattern of 
um, delay and huge double standards and lack of acknowledgement. Like the the picture that's created in the minds of a lot of people is that like every agricultural activity done in Ireland is you know it's it's Joe five cows and it's you know it's small local ah the bottle of milk on the doorstep this kind of complete rubbish like I often have thought around the whole Mercosur uh, rhetoric which I don't agree with you know I don't think we should be um, agreeing to deals that have like tariff free kind of beef being shipped across the world um, but they say you know the the big especially from the IFA, like we have to protect the rainforest. How is it fair flooding, flooding, whatever, flooding Europe with uh, cheap beef? And yet if you say, okay, well, then maybe Europe shouldn't be flooding North Africa with cheap milk. And they're like, but it's sustainable. We have to feed the world. <laughs> the world will go hungry. And it's just, it's, it's completely dishonest. And I do think that there, there has been a change recently. I think more people are seeing through um, a lot of the IFA. Uh, and it, it, it is complete lies and disinformation at this point or misinformation. Like it's pure Trumpian. I remember looking at the Irish Farmers Journal headline recently, about maybe a month or two ago. And their headline on their front page was um, something to do with uh, plans to cut the national herd. And I was reading about it and it, the the article was talking about these pl- the government plans to slash the national herd. And I'm like, but this this is completely like it is completely made. I missed up. this bit of good news. <laughs> well, but this is it. You missed it because it never happened. And it's like it's like I'm waiting to turn the page one day, and it's like Noah's Ark found on Mars. And it's like <laughs> like it's it's getting to that level of you're like, oh well, but that's not real, is it? And it's you know it's 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 no longer um it's no longer a discussion about what you think should happen. It's now it's like what is happening is kind of the the discussion what's real and what's not. And it's it's really just wanting to have the cake and eat it too, you know. But one of the real positives in recent years has been that some of the smaller farmers you had like beef plan you had uh, uh, I can't remember what's called rural does this rural Ireland group of small farmers speaking out against the IFA. And speaking out and, and trying to start to form like a separate voice and saying, actually, no, when the IFA speak, they're speaking for the big agribusinesses. They're speaking for the big business farmers. They're not speaking for your ordinary, or your, your small, what, the, 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 the small farmers that do that do still exist, obviously less and less. But uh, um, uh, but that's been a good, to, to try to drive a wedge between those uh, um, uh, two groups, you know. Um, maybe, go on, sorry. No, I was just going to say, yeah, it, it, like it is interesting because I think on the ground, like I'm from an agricultural area, but it's mostly sheep, hill, hill farms. Um, and the, there's not a huge IFA representation there at all. It's mostly INHFA, which is the Nature and Hill Farmers Association. Um, and I think on the ground, it's a lot more nuanced. Like, you know, farming communities know the IFA doesn't represent them, especially if they're all part of a different organization. But what's interesting, I find, is that RTE obviously have Tim Cullinan on speed dial. Like, he was responding to the budget. He was responding to the Climate Action Bill. Uh, you know, he's up responding not just as the voice of farmers, but as the voice of rural Ireland, whatever that is, which actually didn't work. We all told us anyone passed the, the red cow roundabout recently. Is that everyone in rural Ireland? 
and we have a limerick now i'd like to object <laughs> uh, um so what was i going to say so we've we've passed the the Conor McCabe test. We've proven that we do read the Farmer's Journal, uh, um, which was his. And uh, on, on the Week at Work podcast, he really set. A, he recently set a test for the left that the Irish left needs to be reading the Farmer's Journal. But we've 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 clearly ticked that box, uh, uh, which is good news. But let's move on. I, I think uh, Des, you were saying about the um, one of the aspects of the COP twenty six agreement uh, um, that didn't get much coverage that Ireland sort of shaft and the uh, the global South. Or helping to shaft the global south um, with this loss and damage uh, supports things, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's something that I, I was looking at because it was a huge part of COP26 and something that's interesting in, in its own right is that it got very little coverage, or at least in the, the global north and um, in Ireland, it got very little coverage around this loss and, and damage fund, um, which is a fund, you know, it's an issue that's been around really since the early 90s and the first IPCC reports on, on climate change. There's been talk of developing a fund uh, to, to pay for the costs um, uh, of the impacts of, of climate change. Um, and for decades now, it, it has been, you know, the foundational just transition issue on a global basis, particularly between global north and, and global south. Um, you know, uh, the principle principles of it being that there needs to be uh, an equitable sharing of the losses and damage that's going to come from, from climate change, you know. And it's a separate kind of work stream, if you like, to, to, to mitigation and, and adaptation where there's, you know, there's other um, work there on, on funds coming on, on that. Um, and COP25, which was two years ago in Madrid, agreed to work specifically on developing a loss and development funds, you know, based on, you know, the, the big polluters, the big polluting nations should, should pay and, and, and sharing principles. Um, so that you know, there was a there's been a huge push on um, since COP25 to make sure that the loss and damage fund was absolutely core to coming out of COP26 in, in Glasgow. Um, but what happened is that the US and also Europe moved very quickly and very early and decisively against the loss and damage fund and made it very clear that they would not sign up to. Uh, funding loss and damage um, to to support those countries that are su- suffering damage and will suffer uh, damage in the in the years ahead um, and it got pushed out at an early stage and uh, ultimately the text of the final agreement from Glasgow just talked about that there would be a dialogue on, on loss and damage uh, sub- subsequently um, and you know it, it was a huge uh, it's been a huge betrayal of the, the global south, a huge betrayal of the principles of of just transition. And I was just just looking there. It was, uh, Teresa Anderson, who she, she's with uh, ActionAid International, said that, that the outcome of it. She described it as an an insult to the millions of people whose lives are being torn apart by the climate crisis. Um, and what huge expectations they'd been going into it uh, to support communities and small farmers, women and girls who who need a fund to rebuild rebuild lives in the the face of what's happening, but that the wealthy countries most responsible for our warming world blocked their ears and hung those people uh, out to to dry. Um, So, you know, it's been a huge... 
setback um, that really undermined COP26 uh, at an early stage. Um, and something else that when I was looking at it, that I was struck by it is that um, Eamon, Eamon Ryan came out, uh, I think he was interviewed by the the, the Times, uh, not the Irish Times, the other, the, the other Times on it, um, about what had happened and about the fact that the EU, um, including Ireland, had been one of the major people who de- defeated it. And he claims that it was, you know, because they didn't want a new bureaucracy to be set up uh, and that it could be an issue for mitigation um, uh, and, uh, and the adaptation pillar. But, you know, he knows uh, and everyone knows that that's completely disingenuous. Um, that's did, did, not, he, hmm. did he not also... He, did he not also- he sort of said two things. I thought at the one stage he was saying, oh, Ireland is happy to host the dialogue on this or we're encouraging more dialogue on this. Yeah. But we're also against any actual, we don't want to do anything because that would be bureaucracy. So yeah. we, we're willing to have a talking shop, but we're not willing to actually support action. To Yeah, to I, I, I found that particularly grotesque, having been a priority to defeating the Loss and Development Fund, uh, this disingenuous excuse around not wanting a, a bureaucracy, and then to come in and said that Ireland would be, and I think he, he used the term, a safe place for this dialogue, you know, um, talk about the gaslighting. And, you know, the, the rest of us are used to eye-rolling when we hear Eamon Ryan at this stage. You know, but this this really is life and death stuff um, to uh, hundreds of millions of people in in the poorest countries in the world who are at threat or on our suffering damage right now, and and to have someone um, as as privileged uh, as Eamon Ryan to you know abuse that issue and misrepresent it like that and defeat it is appalling, and then turn around and offer Ireland as a, as a safe space. There's no safe space for these people. And and we're you know it's being made unsafe, and now we ripped away the possibility of a fund um, uh, to allow them to rebuild their lives uh, when, when they do inevitably suffer damage. So you know I, I think it's it was a backdrop to what happened at COP twenty six. Like I say, didn't get much coverage, um, and you see that then alongside what was done in relation to fossil fuels, um, the diluting uh, of that down so that oil and gas were, you know, uh, emerged completely um, untouched, which was, you know, to the benefit of the US and and Europe in particular. They came up with a whole new phrase. There was this, they came up with a whole new phrase where the the deal originally talked about phasing out uh, coal, and then they, they invented a phrase called "We're going to phase down coal." <laughs> and it's like, what's, I've never even never even heard that before. Like, what yeah. is phasing down? What is that? <laughs> yeah, it, that, 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 and that was, um, uh, and, and that they didn't even use that phrase in relation to oil and gas. So that, that you know, the, the, there isn't even a phasing down of oil and gas. It was only used for for coal and, and uh, what's the impre- expression? I think it was, was it unmitigated coal um, phasing down, you know, which bring, then brings in the CCS technology, which is, you know, virtually uh, unproven. Um, and and it's, it's so, it's mad, like the first, I was reading up on the, I think I talked about this before on the thing, but the 1992 Earth Summit, um, almost 30 years ago, when I got all the world leaders together and they talked about how serious climate change and the environmental destruction was, and we need to do something. And we're like, we're like 30 years on, 30 years of these world summits of leaders. Yeah. And we're still like, 
talking about, well, maybe we'll make coal a little bit nicer. Like the most extreme form of uh, the most pollutive thing. We're still talking about, oh, maybe we can phase it down or whatever. It's, the yeah, best thing yeah. we've actually gotten out of it all is a new phrase in phasing down. I feel like it's going to be one of those things. We start using ironically and then everybody will actually accept it into our language. Yeah, Here's the t- episode title is Phase Down to What? <laughs> Yeah. And, and the phasing out of inefficient subsidies for fossil fuels, you know, that, that word, there's a few key words. The word inefficient there, you know, just allows so much um, to go through. I think it was an unmitigated coal um, phase down. Uh, the, 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 they were all in, I think, in one specific sentence within the agreement and just so many coaches and horses can be driven through each one of those um and they really did so sum up the betrayal that was driven by the west um or the global north at cop 26 but you know what was hidden behind all that was this loss and damage thing which was was, was colossal huge defeat for the global south and and any sort of meaningful just transition and i think it's something that that needed a little bit of airtime you know and this is like literally for the for the like the islands, low-lying islands that in a couple of years' time could be completely uh, uh, sunk uh, um, or other countries in the global south that were facing like the, the at the, the harsh edge of the impacts of climate change and the demand that they should get some sort of compensation for, for the, as I said, the loss and damage that they're facing as a result of climate change. That, and that's it, exactly, exactly it. The, the poorest um, of, the, of the victims of climate change you know, betrayed. There's no other way to put it. What I what I did think of is like, and I suppose I've been kind of mulling over it before, but definitely with COP, I started thinking like, and I, I don't know the answer to this, but like, so if we were to accept, fully accept 100% that no government, none of, like no Irish government, no matter what composition the government is, will tackle uh, climate and will tackle environmental collapse like if we said none of them will then what would it mean for our own actions um because especially in ireland like so much of our actions are focused at our leaders and the government and being like okay you know, you have to do this and even talking about it, you know the first reaction is like okay well we big protest but we're still appealing to government to do something and this is like uh, this brings me back to thinking about the whole um individual action versus system change like i think I think there is a space within which, like, I wonder sometimes does system change, and, and I, I use it loads myself, but does system change obscure the fact that that will involve changes from all of us? And system change actually perhaps doesn't necessarily mean that it comes from government down, but that all of us as individuals can create a system change. Like, so many of the changes are needed uh will result in action, will result in changes to our lives that we can already make. So for instance, I was even thinking about, imagine the difference between, so like I don't fly, I've, you know, I, or I try not to fly as much as possible. Um, and instead of saying, oh, you know, I don't fly because whatever, and having, you know, weird notions of my carbon footprint and stuff, you know, what if we started thinking of it as, no, I'm, you know, I'm boycotting airlines. Because... I think, you know, system change doesn't necessarily have to come from government. And it could, like, I just think sometimes the the focus on, it's not individual action, it's system change we need. While true in one sense, maybe, maybe corners us into constantly waiting for 
like our governments to do something. Like maybe system change doesn't have to come from government, but can come from individuals acting together. I don't know. Anyway, these are just like things yeah, that keep no, uh, over my head because I'm like, but the, the, it has like, as you said, it's been 30 years. Yeah, yeah. I understand that, but but I, I, I would just push back on that a bit, to be honest with you, because I, I just think there's the ability of a cup of us as individuals to really change the system is is like as just individuals to our own individual behavior um, of like boycotting flying, for instance, uh, is not going. I don't think that is. I think there's a limit to how much. Like for instance, we were talking earlier on about changing city planning, making city city centres more pedestrian friendly, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That requires change at a like beyond beyond what the individuals can do. Do you know what I mean? We can't individually pedestrianise streets. I'm in favour of mass action that might like shut down streets and uh, for a short time sort of demonstrate what it could be like if you pedestrianised it and that kind of stuff. But we as individuals can't do that. We as individuals can't provide free public transport um, or stop the destruction of, like, stop the big agriculture and all that. I, I do, I understand what you're saying. Like, it feels like we're sitting around waiting for the big systems to change, for the politicians to change and for the governments to change things. Um, but, and I, obviously we should do what we can in the in the meantime, but I, I don't know. I just feel like not, not the saying, scale of change that's necessary, we can't do as, as but, individuals. But I'm not know? saying we do it as individuals. I'm saying we do mm-hmm. it as the people, which has changed everything in the past, came. Like, what has ever done it? And I just, I look, like, if you look at what has changed everything, and it does always, in the end, come down to, or, or a lot, sorry, a lot of times it comes down to um, the influence over capital. So, it, it, you know, it does come down to, like, it, it's, it's why <laughs> governments are so afraid of workers' actions compared to students' actions. Um, and I, I'm not saying that we all individually, like, I'm not saying, okay, well, me, us four boycott flying and we just change what it's called. But I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of, think of like boycotts have changed things. Ian. Like I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about like looking at how we can leverage, you know, leverage a system change and, you know, governments do change to try and hold on to power. That's what they do. Um, but I just think like, I think we do have more economic power or we do have to start leveraging our economic power more in this whole situation. Like, and that's just, that's just picking one thing. That's just picking flights, for instance. But I think like individuals as a group uh, on mass have always changed things. So the main point I'm getting out about what you're saying is that like, we need to be a collective. We as workers and as people need to work together to make sure whatever change is coming happens, whether it be a decision that we make to boycott things or be it that we push the government into it. It needs to be done as a collective and it needs to be done together. You know what I mean? So although you're saying individual actions, what you actually mean is working together as a group of people who want to see change happen. You know what I mean? So like individuals deciding by themselves to boycott flights. Absolutely. Of course it's, you know, it's, it's better individually for you, but like if you could get a mass group of workers to agree to that, it would be a different story. You know, it would be more impactful. So I, I I think that's what you're saying anyway. Yeah. Like I'm not, I'm not fully sure. I suppose I, you know, let's just, let's just think about flying. Like I always think, you know, if, 
it always comes up. You'll say something like, I'm not flying. And people are like, well, that's all well and good, but individual day changes. And I've said it myself, you know, individ- and I try not to push people to feel guilty about what they do and saying, okay, well, individual changes, you know, aren't good enough. But just imagine for a second, imagine we all, like the system change we're talking about will result in us all not flying anyway, or re- yeah. flying so or- little that it's, negligible. But hopefully we'd have the replacement. You'd have the longer holiday time so you could go by boat or you'd have the high-speed uh, rail infrastructure so you can travel yeah, by that. Yeah, you'd, result, you'd have the alternatives in place to make it really possible. Yeah, but a lot of like, and, and, and that's another thing, I do think like there will be reductions in living standards of certain types of quality, certain things that we see as part of our quality of life for people in richer countries. Like, I do think also in terms of system change, and, and like none of these are kind of fully formed thoughts. <laughs> these are just things I'm thinking about. Like, another thing I think when people talk about system changes is this idea that nothing will actually have to really change for us. Everything will just be slightly more sustainable. So, and it's like definitely, I think, without a shift in values as to what constitutes quality of life, uh, it, it will be able to be perceived and it will be able to be portrayed as a reduction in quality of life. If you get me, like, I, I, you know, we, we cannot continue consumption. There, and if for some levels of consumption, there is no alternative. There's no green alternative. Um, so there's uh, also no need for a lot of it as well, though. Yeah. A lot of consumption that we do is because we're getting advertisements rammed down our throat every second of every day you know what I mean so what I think is a good quality of life like getting my burger from McDonald's this evening or whatever like you know what I mean actually to have something nutritious would actually be a better quality of life for me you know what I mean so what we actually think of as quality life is actually skewed by the advertisement system and by you know the powers above that are pushing us to buy products there's there's two concepts um yeah, one is the discussion and the debate about degrowth and like uh, um, a socialist degrowth. Is it possible? And and how would you manage to have degrowth whilst also actually improving the quality of life of, of ordinary people? Um, uh, uh, but not just, uh, yeah, exactly. It's not just saying, well, it, we can continue doing everything we're doing and do it twice as much, but we'll just, we'll sprinkle the magic sauce of new technology over it and it'll all be fine. Uh, um so say acknowledging that there are like limits. So there's, there's what that's one topic, degrowth and all that. And I think it's something that uh, I think we, we have plans to try to discuss and debate out more and talk to some of the, uh, on, on the podcast. But the other point just got returning is because I do think I appreciate what Nicole's doing and saying, well, we're all on the one side. We're all saying we all have to take action collectively, um, not just as individuals. So we're saying boycotts. Yes, but not just boycott as individuals, boycott collectively. Um, I take what Nicole's saying is we're all on that one side, but I do think there's a difference. And I'm not like having a go, but um, but it, the question in my mind is, and I, I boycott, like, you know, I, I really like sparkling water. I can't get a machine to make my water sparkling because they're made in by an un, a company I won't name. Well, no, I will name them, sorry. SodaStream uh, produce goods in uh, the occupied, uh, in the settlements and stuff, so I can't have one of those. Um, so you, I do. I'm oh in favour of boycotting key, things. You poor thing. How do you know, live without major, sparkling water? <laughs> I know, the, the major issue. But you know, I am in favour of boycotts. But the question in my head is, where do we think that us as a collective have the most power? Where do we have the? What's our greatest strength again? When in the battle between us and climate change, or in the battle between us and like the 
psychopaths that are running the world and uh, driving us over a cliff. In that battle, where do we have the most power? And is it consumer power or is it like, it, you know, as Sasha was saying, worker power or political power and stuff like that? And I think, um, obviously, we have power on all fronts and I'm in favor of using everything we can. But I do think that there's a limit to our consumer. To, there's a bigger limit to consumer, to the ability to have mass consumer power. Whereas I think compared to strike action or uh, that kind of stuff where workers have more direct power to actually bring capitalist, capitalism to its knees, like a small group of workers going on strike can have a much bigger impact than a small group of people boycotting um, products. Yeah, I might just, just, I think back to South Africa uh, and the boycotts there and the Duns workers, you know, and that, that was kind of uh, individual um but, but but also collective action on on boycotts that was very powerful uh, definitely had an effect and played a part so there, there definitely isn't an either or in terms of of this debate um and there is a role for you know um communities acting collectively on something like um boycotts uh, so that there, there's a role for that but uh, that that collective uh, activity and expression ultimately has to get up to the level where then it's driving through the sy- systemic changes uh, as well. But they're all kind of tributaries uh, of that river that ultimately will bring uh, sy- systemic change. So, uh, you know, I take it, it's not an either or, um, but ultimately you've got to get to the point where you're, you're driving through the systemic changes at a political level from that collective power. So trying to put like an example on what Keen was saying. So say we all decide we're going to boycott flights, right? So the four of us are not on that flight. So individually we have our better carbon footprint, but that flight is still leaving without us probably with other people who bought cheaper seats because whatever the availability, but if, if as a group of workers, we block the flight path or we take protest or action that it's not happening, then the flight can't leave. So it's kind of more impactful to, to do it in that way. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I'm, I can, I don't have any answer. I suppose I've just been thinking a lot about how I do think the whole narrative of individual action being irrelevant enough, not to talk about. I wonder how is that limited well, I think it has definitely limited me in how I think about what we can do. Like, like, cause I, you're right. There's like, you, you know, it, it will be pushed. Um, in the end, it'll be, you know, what you're hoping is to push the system to a crisis point to change. I suppose it's just how we're looking about or how kind of historic or recently, even we've been looking about doing it. Is it like in, instead of, I don't know, like I just keep thinking about in you know in terms of using the Irish government's um, complete uh, helplessness when it comes to business interests, for instance, against it, uh, which is like the Irish government is really just a, a facilitative kind of organisation for businesses in Ireland, um, and I I just think it's not utilised enough as a as a way to get at them, unfortunately. Now, I, like, like I said, I don't know. I'm just kind of, I'm just thinking out loud. But, it's, uh, it's, for it's, sure, it's, and like none of our tactics, none of the tactics, none of the things that we could be doing are being utilised next or near enough. We're doing 
10% of the amount of stuff that I'd like us to be doing, 1% even, do you know what I mean, of the amount of stuff that we should be doing. The only question, the only challenge is, for us all as individually, we have to like, what do you focus your energies on? Because we can only, you only have, you know. Well, I think it's where, obvious. Where the the energies need to be focused on how we're going to get uh, carbonated water freely available in an ecologically sustainable <laughs> way. Sparkling water has now become... Sparkling water. Peace bread and land is outdated. It's, it's sparkling water, um, um, weed and uh, 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 something else, I don't know. Um, uh, yeah. I suppose I just think the Irish government could be pushed to crisis more often. Like, look at, for instance, we talked about earlier, look at the IFA. Like, all of their communications, all their actions are constantly on the point of crisis. And I think maybe the environmental kind of groups, sphere, all of us collectives engage in a bit too much good faith. <laughs> maybe that's something to say. Like, you know, if you look at you would think uh, if you just read in the paper, you'd be like, wow, farming is really in a crisis. Uh, uh, you know, and obviously I know there's a whole load of differences there. Um, but I just think we could push the Irish government into crisis situations or into more, definitely more uncomfortable situations more. Now, like that's it. I don't know how. I'm just thinking, yeah. I just think no, there's no. more, and I, I don't know what that is. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know what I would do if I 100% accepted that the governments would never, our government would never on its own make the right decision without being like head over a barrel. Kind of. That's all. Yeah. Well, definitely we should accept that, that, and we should, I think we should integrate that into our working things, like, you know, uh, um, but, uh, and once you do figure it out, and you have it all. We'll uh, you can pitch the article. We'll roll it in rupture. Uh, um, uh, the answers, what to do. Um, okay, we should move on because we're way over time. And I do want to talk a little bit about uh, the uh, the other thing that's leading to the, the end of the world. The, um, the that lo- our, our our old friend COVID, um, uh, uh, which is ripping through uh, the the country again. Uh, um, I don't know. Uh, is anybody else feeling like this? Like this terrible sense of not deja vu, Groundhog Day, or like you know, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas twenty twenty. Um, yeah, like my anxiety levels are back up where they were originally. You know what I mean? Where I'm like, oh my god, do I have COVID? Do you have COVID? Like the other day, Keen, when you had your scare and you had been in the office with us the Thursday before, I was like, felt like I should have been going around in a hazmat suit afterwards. You know what I mean? It's very bad for the mental health. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was it. Was mad. It, I, I, um, I went to a wedding, um, and I didn't realize this. Weddings are like, are they had a special exemption. Like it was all, all rules, all no holds barred at weddings. There was no masks uh, indoors. There was nothing, which makes you feel like we were at a venue that only does weddings. So those poor bar workers in that venue were like constantly exposed in a, working in an environment with no masks. But yeah, I was and weddings and go co- on all day as well. It's like oh, yeah, a it long fun. shift. I don't want to, I'm not talking it down. It was, it was, it was great. Like it was lovely to do, like, you know, um, but uh, I then got a cold a couple of days later and like, I was panicked. I was like, oh shit, what have I got it? Uh, um, and then I, uh, I, 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 had, I managed to have some antigen tests um, because 
uh, I got some from somebody that got them from the NHS. Uh, um, so I got I got free antigen tests off the NHS. Um, but uh, and then one of them came out positive. So then I was like, oh crap. I definitely have it. I got a po- I had one negative and then the next day a positive uh, uh, antigen while I was waiting on my PCR test. Uh, um, and so I was like, because uh, uh, me and my partner are living together. So like I was in one room, just like I was sealed into the bedroom. Like, you know, I had to wear a face mask to go to the bathroom. I had to wear a face mask to get get a glass of water or whatever. And I was like, it was horrible for, for 48 hours. And then I finally got my PCR test back negative. So it was, um, but like mad that you had to wait. There was this massive waiting list now for PCR tests. We're just at capacity of PCR testing. Yeah, I believe people are even waiting to get one in the first place. And then you have to wait further on your results. So, yeah, it's getting out of hand again. And it's like they're not going to lock down again, which, to be honest, I'm starting to think that Adrian Cummins is some sort of psyop by the IBEC to turn everyone off the idea of lockdowns. I'm like, Maybe we should just risk it. No more lockdown, please. I can't have them on the radio. I can't have them anywhere. It's not <laughs> worth it. We'll just take the risk. Thousands may die, but it's the price I am willing to pay not to hear them so again. As long as I don't have to listen to Adrian Cohen. Yeah. yeah. But it, it doesn't seem like it's like, I don't know. Are they, do you think there'll be lockdowns or do you think they'll bother? Like part of me is like, surely they'll lock down now so everyone can shop till they drop before Christmas and then lockdown for Christmas. Is that not going to be the thing? Yeah, it's extraordinary how we're uh, retreading those. I mean, it it feels like there's more restrictions are inevitable uh, and and unfortunately probably necessary uh, at this point. Um, I think, you know, they're obviously... The, the the infection numbers seem to have pl- plateaued a bit, um, uh, although the lack of testing capability could be to do with that. And the, the hospital hospitalization numbers, I see numbers are, are going up a bit. So I'd say they're just trying holding now to see what happens next but that's where you get buried because you know um because the, the, the lead time on on vaccines so unfortunately there's something more is coming but i think what the whole thing does show is that the reliance on the on a vaccine only strategy uh, has failed badly um because ireland does have relatively high vaccination rates but it's also got amongst the higher um infection rates. And I saw a comparison to Italy, which has similar levels of, of vaccination, but much lower infection rates. And it's associated with, you know, it's the, the, the vaccine plus type approach um, in relation to um, mask wearing, test and trace, um, ventilation, other things that, that Italy and other countries have been doing that have made a big difference. Whereas in Ireland, the government has just gone with almost an exclusively vaccine-only strategy, where it's been clear, and the likes of the ISAG group have been saying for months and months and months, and were warning about schools, what was happening in schools months ago, what needed to be done, um, and have been proved correct that you need a vaccine-plus strategy with ventilation, really good comprehensive test and trace, high-quality masks, you know, and sick pay uh, schemes. All those were all part of what we needed to be doing um, and and the vaccine only strategy is you know is is failing in real time unfortunately yeah it's i think it is clear that like over the summer once it was once the government saw the figures that like people were getting the vaccines and everybody was signing up for them and that we were going to have a a, a good take up of the vaccine that the government sort of just sat back and said well that's that done uh, we'll just rely on the vaccines that sorted um, and like really basic things like we there's this ventilation bill to try to 
insist that bars and offices and stuff have to uh, be making sure that they have clean air, that there's basic ventilation in workplaces. And that has not even been done. Like people for profit have to bring this bill because the government haven't brought in any enforceable standard for clean air in, in work. And like, this is like two years into an airborne virus and we don't have any standard that says you have to provide clean air in a bar, restaurant, office, uh, uh, or whatever, you know? It's sur- surreal, really. Um, and it's because they just thought, well, the vaccines will do all of, of it for us. And uh, um, we seem to be paying the, the, the price of that um, now, you know? What's, and then the other thing, Gunther? No, I was just going to say, what's, what's grim about it is, like, it would be extremely reasonable for the gov- for a government to act like, okay, we will be living with COVID forever. Now, as in COVID will be circulating within the human population forever. What do we need to do now to put in place? Like, Because this isn't, mm-hmm. it's almost like everyone, it, there's this idea that it, it's just going to like, okay, if we just make it through, you know, this six months, it'll be gone. But it's like, it would be extremely reasonable for the government to start putting in like long-term um, yeah. to, legi- to legislate around accepting that COVID will be part of our communities forever. And that's yeah, it looks like we'll be doing, it'll be like the flu uh, um, and you'll be getting your uh, flu jab, your COVID jab update, uh, booster maybe once a year and uh, and stuff like, yeah, ventilation, improving ventilation, sick pay for all. Um, and the other side of it is Irish ICU capacity. Like the weaknesses, we, we had a weak health service coming into this, but those weaknesses have been like, thoroughly exposed and like those obviously it's not a silver bullet but we do need we need we need to be at least bringing ourselves up to eu standards in terms of icu capacity you know yeah we went for that real typical irish attitude of like ah sure we'll just open a few windows and everyone will be grand you know and like it, it clearly hasn't worked you know the schools are absolutely rampant with covid even though they were told to open the windows so yeah we need to take other actions and uh the ICU beds is a huge one. It's really highlighted the inefficiency of a lot of our services with health being the main one. But yeah, it's... it's yeah. Yeah, just so on that, because I mean, there is, there is a fundamental weakness to the Irish public health system that is a big part of our problem now. So like we've got about um, three beds in... Uh, in the public hospital system per 100,000 population. The average of the OECD level is, is, is five. Uh, ICU beds were a little over half the OECD average. So the, the government's own plans were to have 321 ICU beds at the end of this year. They, it, it was in the doll yesterday that they're at 300, only at 301 uh, at the moment. Um, but, you know, they're, they're, so they need to get to close to 600 ICU beds to be at the OECD average. They're currently at 300. They're only going to add their own plans for next year is to add just 19. So that's one nine. You know, like that. That this is not, um, you know, building the sort of health system that even without COVID, you know, you, you would need to be building uh, almost double the number of ICU beds, almost double the number of um, you know, just beds in general within the public health system. And it's just that ongoing um, unwillingness to invest in public health systems, as, as in so many other things. And you've got, you know, the, the private health system then is there as the, the stopgap for those that can, can afford it and the excuse not to invest in the public health system. And it's really 
one uh, amongst a number of things that's really hurting us at the moment and is a factor in why Ireland had some of the longest lockdowns in Europe because we were just running out of ICU capacity so quickly. Okay, so I think we might wrap it up there uh, um, for the week. Uh, we have some more stuff that we've been hoping to, to t- talk about. I might put some links into the show notes, uh, um, in particular to Mark, that uh, today is the uh, International Day of Action uh, against uh, in opposition to violence against women. Uh, um, and there's some shocking stories from uh, uh, how the Irish judicial system is completely and utterly failing to, to deal with violence against women. Uh, we were hoping to talk about Maybe we, we'll talk about it on a future episode or we'll throw the, the links into the, the show notes anyway. But for today, we leave it there. Uh, um, I will thank everybody again for, especially those that are supporting us on Patreon. Look, we, we don't want to, I don't want to be asking people to sign up on Patreon. Nobody wants to hear it. Uh, um, everybody's rolling their eyes at the concept of it. But the reason why we have to do it is because we don't want to be blocking stuff behind paywalls. We don't want to be saying, oh, well, if you want to hear this episode, if you want to hear the rest of this episode, pay for it. We want to be able to put this stuff out there for free. Anybody that wants to listen can listen to it, get it out there. Uh, and, but to do that, we need those of you who listen and like and would have paid if we made you to chip in anyway, uh, to chip in 250 a month on the Patreon uh, or more if you can afford it. Um, so patreon.com forward slash rupture radio uh, um, if you can. And then we're hoping end of the world dependent uh, and we are, are hoping to have a live show uh, um, on December 11th in Connolly Books uh, th- obviously we'll have to keep a close eye on the COVID stuff uh, um, so it may just be small numbers that can actually come uh, um, but for those on Patreon if you are interested they'll be the first in line uh, to it and we're hoping to keep an eye out we may have other tickets available as well uh, um, yeah so that's that uh, thanks a million for everybody for joining us thanks uh, in particular well thanks to Nicole and Des of course uh, but thanks in particular to Stacia for coming and for stirring it up and having a, a stirring up our discussion and giving us a bit of a a, a, a bit of a discussion and a debate at, at last on these things which is more than welcome thanks for having me thanks for uh, joining us yeah, cheers. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye